I'm Christine. And I'm Alan. We'd like to thank you for tuning in to our discussion this week. Our hope is that we'll share some information that you will find helpful. So now we invite you to join us as we together listen listen for for the the word. word. Hi, everybody. Welcome to our podcast today. We are still in the year of Mark, so it's Mark 8 today, uh, verses 27 through 38. Now, I want to note that from last week's podcast, there's actually a pretty big skip in the Revised Common Lectionary, so I think Alan's going to cover that, kind of what happens there, a little bit anyway, um, to put us into place for today. Um, as we know, every time we skip, we miss out on part of on part of the story, on part of what um, led us to where we are now. But um, anyway, so take it away, Alan. <laughs> Okay, thanks, Christy. And I want to say uh, congratulations to you and to all of both of us because this podcast marks one year of podcasting Woo-hoo! for us. Woohoo! Yeah. <laughs> so we we reach a turning point in Mark's gospel with our lesson for this week. Up to this point, Jesus has focused his proclamation of the his his energy basically on the proclamation of the kingdom of God as well as the demonstration of its presence through his ministry. With this passage, Mark tells us that Jesus began Mm -hmm. to tell the disciples that he must suffer and die. And from this point, the movement of Mark's gospel points toward the cross and resurrection. Right, right, which is really a lot of Mark's gospel. It is. I mean, we're, we're in chapter 8, right. and, you know, that goes to chapter 16. 16. So right. about half of it is, and I think mm-hmm. that's kind of an important point. Sometimes we we tend to think of the 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 death and resurrection pieces of being just as the tail end. And really, mm-hmm. when you think about that Mark's using this, and he doesn't even share full mm. resurrection story yeah. that this is really his focus. Well, <laughs> and there's a similar dynamic in Luke. Um, uh, in Luke 10, or, or maybe it's the end of Luke 9, I think it is, um, Luke says, Jesus set his face to go toward Jerusalem. Mm, yes. And, and, you know, so, so you have that you same You still have of, that same sim- focus that way. Shift. That's true, yeah, that's true. Yeah. So uh, one important thing I noticed in this, pa- this passage is, is actually in all three synoptic it is. gospels. It is. Yeah. And of course, um, we have pointed out before, though, that these types of, of similarities are always treated a little bit different by yeah, each person. Yeah. So why don't you tell us about that? Yeah, so uh, it is important that it's found in all three synoptic gospels. And, and both of these episodes together, the, the episode where Jesus asks the disciples who people say that he is, and then, they, then he asks, who do you say that I am? And the one where he tells them about the true nature of discipleship. Um, and it's the, the you know the, there's a fair amount of consistency in the way that it's constructed. Um, I think it's worth noting at this point that in this segment of Jesus' ministry, Matthew tracks Mark's sequence of events fairly closely from the mm-hmm. death of John the mm-hmm. Baptist all the way to the triumphal entry. There's some events, some stories in Matthew that aren't in Mark, and there's some events and some things in, in Mark that aren't in Matthew, but basically you have this sort of chronology, this sort of outline of events from, from the death of John the Baptist to the triumphal entry that track pretty consistently. And this similarity in the sequencing of events between Matthew and Mark has been the major basis for what has been known as the two-source mm-hmm. hypothesis of gospel origins, that Mark was written first and that Matthew and Luke both borrowed from Mark and Q. Mm-hmm. Now, I've said before, I think gospel origins is really probably more complicated than any one theory can explain. Right. And, and you have places, so you have places like this where Mark seems to maybe have a priority, you know, and, 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 and that 
seems right. to be setting the tone. But you have other places where Matthew seems to be mm-hmm. original and other places where even Luke seems to be more original. So I don't think that any one the- thesis will, will, will sufficiently explain it. But just, just a note that this... Right. This, this sequence of events tracking together is one of the arguments that they use to, right, to support right. the two to two source the hypothesis. two source one and it's yeah and I, that seems to be well at least that's the hypothesis they were teaching in seminary when I was there. It, um, I mean, if if I were to say the majority view out there, you know what most mm-hmm. people tend to teach is the two source hypothesis. Right. Two source hypothesis. Right. Say that three times fast. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> I, I would say, however, that among New Testament scholars, that is, you know, it may be, it may be one of the major theories out there, but it's not the only one. And I would say that that you will find New Testament scholars all all over the page. I think now, so. Now, yeah. the, the one thing you will not find is you won't find anybody saying that Matthew is the first or, or well, Luke th- is the first. that's right. That's there right. are a few who have tried to argue that here and there. But, but um, you know, what you'll find among, among New Testament scholars is, I think, a more complicated uh, understanding right. of gospel well, origins. And, of course, the historian in me, too, always thinks about... Um, the oral tradition, which is floating around. Well, and you've and got... You've which got we can the, never, we'll never be able to prove, right? Because we'll never have right. a record. Of, that's the whole thing right. with oral tradition. But you know these stories are that being played passed. played a role. Yeah. And, and, and so how did that... You know, did Matthew have access to his own oral tradition? Did Luke have his access to his own oral tradition? Did Mark have access to his own oral tradition? You know, we, we've pointed out before that there are some who think that there was a passion narrative that was already written down mm-hmm. at a very early stage mm-hmm. that the, all, all the gospel writers all four of the gospel writers had some oh, sort of yeah. access to yeah so you know the, while the two source hypothesis continues to be taught right. as the view of gospel origins oh, i would I say that's know. not quite the answer i don't think we know i will be curious see i have still have some hope for archaeology if q ever pops up you, you never know i mean they keep finding new stuff i'm not holding time. my breath i'm not either but you <laughs> never know you never i can't believe the stuff that does continue to pop yeah, up that's so true. that's true um but no, probably not, right? So we'll probably never have that. Okay, let's go ahead and move on. Um, go so, so Mark just simply says that Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi, and we're not told the reason why, but we can infer it from the material that the, that the lectionary leaves out. Earlier in the chapter, Mark tells us that the Pharisees came and began to argue with him, asking for a sign from heaven to test him, Mark 8.11. And following that episode, Mark also reports Jesus' warning that the, to the disciples to beware of the yeast of the Pharisees. And we know that in many biblical contexts, yeast is used as an analogy for mm-hmm. any kind of contamination. So it's possible that Jesus had decided to withdraw. Now, Caesarea Philippi was located about 30 miles north of the Sea of Galilee in what was known as the Nabataean Kingdom at that time. It was under the rule of Herod Philip. Mm-hmm. And today we would know of it as the northern part of what is called the Golan Heights, which mm-hmm. is the disputed territory right, between Israel right. and Syria. All right. So they're... They're moving on. They're obviously they're obviously making their way towards Jerusalem and uh, Caesarea. I'm sorry, Caesarea. And here I am having my Latin teacher's Caesarea in my mind because that's how he said it. So um, anyway, let's go on. Let's keep going on, and um, we're on the way. And and what happens in Mark's? So Mark account? tells us that on the way, Jesus simply asked the disciples, "Who do people say that I am?" 
And their answer is essentially the same as the one offered in conjunction with the story of John's death. John the Baptist, others Elijah, still others one of the prophets. And we noted before that there may have been a legend circulating in those days that a prophet like John the Baptist or even one of the major prophets of Israel would rise from the dead and have miraculous mm-hmm. powers. Mm-hmm. And so... But Jesus really goes beyond that. He, he's not so concerned about what other people say about him. He, the real question is, but who do you say that I am? And in the Greek, that's phrased in an emphatic way. But who do you say that I am? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And it's Peter who answers for the 12. And we saw that mm-hmm. when we looked at John chapter 6, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and it, Peter simply says, you're the Christ. Um, and, you know, we, we've said before we, we should take note that both Matthew and Luke elaborate on this statement in their own ways. But we should remember that, again, in Mark's gospel, the only one who uses the title Son of God for Jesus, besides those possessed by unclean spirits, is the centurion Mm -hmm. at the cross. Mm -hmm. So Matthew may say, you're the Christ, the Son of the living God, but that's not what Mark's gospel has. And, and, you know, our... Our reformers are going to collapse that together. So, but I think this is very intentional on Mark's part. Well, probably. and when you read Matthew, it has a very different ring to it because mm-hmm. in Matthew, then Jesus follows up by commending Jesus, but right. by commending Peter for this statement. And I think Matthew, Mark tells a very different story. Right. Okay. So let's keep going on with this. Um, um, tell us more about about Peter and and why Peter. Yeah, you know, it's interesting that Peter should speak for the disciples is something new in the context of Mark's gospel. I think, you know, those of us who've been around the gospels much are used to Peter being a spokesman for the disciples, but that hasn't happened in Mark's gospel. Uh, previously, he's found among the first of Jesus' disciples at the at the calling of his first disciples, and he's found among the inner circle of the twelve that he takes into the room with him when he raises Jairus's daughter from the dead. But otherwise, he doesn't really stand out. Mm-hmm. And and however, from this point, Peter begins to play the role of a spokesman for the disciples, mm-hmm. and um, so and we see this in various passages in in the, in the latter part of Mark's gospel. So. As we move on through this, one of the big things um, once Peter makes this declaration is um, Jesus' response. Don't yeah. tell anybody. Yeah. So that seems opposite of what one would want to see. Once you discover something about someone, you right. want to proclaim it. So right. explain what's going on. And and I think it's important to note that that happens in both Mark and Luke, mm-hmm. that, that Jesus immediately orders the disciples not to tell anyone. It sort of implies that maybe what Peter had to say was was correct, but I think in light of the ongoing theme of the disciples' lack of understanding, which is reinforced by that section about the yeast of the Pharisees in Mark 8, 14 through 21, I I think it's a bit more complicated. I think it's difficult to know whether Mm -hmm. Jesus approved of this declaration or not. It's possible that he did, and that's the way Matthew presents it with Jesus, Peter, with Jesus commendation of Peter, you know, you know, I tell you flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my father has revealed to you and you're Peter. And on this rock, I will build my church. It's very positive. And I think Alan, that version's what's in our mind. I think it is too. I think we come to that because we collapse it too. We collapse (laughs) it too. And in our mind is this is 
wonderful. Peter has identified who Christ is, and it it reflects the growth of the disciples' faith, right. all these things that are we kind of attach to it. Mm-hmm. Um, but that's not where Mark is. That's not where Mark is. Uh, you know, and I think it's also possible in Mark's gospel that while this was a step beyond what the people were saying about Jesus, it's still insufficient mm-hmm. because of the nationalistic implications that the that the term Messiah would have carried in the typical Jewish mindset of the day. And so Jesus sets out immediately to correct those notions, I believe. Well, I, and I think you're, I think you're right there. And obviously, you know, I, I, and thinking of, so Jesus asked, who do you say that I am? And he responds, you are the Christ. And Jesus is pondering, okay, that's who he thinks I am, but he's thinking I'm this nationalistic Messiah figure. That's his concept of what, Christ is. Their concept of the Messiah was someone who would lead exactly. Israel to throw off so the yoke of this Rome. This idea that Peter really knew who he was doesn't actually make sense within, mm. within Peter's whole worldview, right? Yeah, I mean, no. and I think that's part of why this, this dialogue is so important because mm. we learn and Peter learns that he's not who he thinks he is. Right. Mm-hmm. Well, and I don't know that Peter learns it now, but he well, learns it right. eventually, he right? He learns it eventually, but, but the seeds are planted, is <laughs> yes, my point, yeah. is, is that... And, and, and that's why, you know, it's interesting, Matthew also tells us that, as Mark does, that Jesus began to tell them his true mission and fate. So Peter says, you're the Christ, and very likely that implied all kinds of things about, you know, leading the people of Israel to throw off the yoke of Rome, ascending the throne of David, all of that, you know. Uh, Jesus tells him, well, this is what, this is who I really am, you know, and and tells him about his true mission and fate. Now, interesting, while Matthew says that Jesus began to show them these things, Mark says that Jesus began to teach Mm, them. That is really interesting. Tell us about those two different words. Well, I think, I I think it implies that Understanding Jesus' mission and fate was important to understanding Jesus' identity. And and we've seen this really kind of cropping up several times as a major mm-hmm. theme in Mark, is that you can't understand who Jesus really is unless you understand that he's going to die on the cross mm-hmm. and be raised from the dead. Mm-hmm. You know, and and so um, I think Jesus. This is where Jesus begins to teach them that. So right. just as Jesus had taught them about the kingdom of God, now he begins to teach them about uh-huh. the true nature like of his that. mission mm-hmm. and his identity. Mm-hmm. And so, what Jesus specifically teaches them is that the Son of Man must undergo great suffering and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the scribes, and be killed, and after three days rise again. And um, I think we've noted before that the little word must in Delta Epsilon Yoda die in the Greek carries the notion of a divine necessity implying that this is God's purpose Mm -hmm. for Jesus. And so that's the basis for the must. That's the basis Mm -hmm. for the necessity. Mm -hmm. I find it interesting also that much of this is couched in the passive voice. In other words, Jesus' mission has to do with what will be done to him rather than what he will do. And that includes rising again, although the, in here the language could be taken either way. But if you, if you think about it in the New Testament, really, the main gist of the, of the language is that God raised Jesus from the dead. It wasn't something that Jesus did on his own. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's, and that's one of those little things that's actually really, really important, I think, is that this is very intentionally couched in this passive mm-hmm. voice. Yeah, um, yeah. And it's something that it would be maybe easy to overlook, but mm-hmm. um, but theologically, it's 
very significant. Yeah. Now, of course, I do. We see. I do think we see Jesus' agency implied in his choice to accept this mission. Right. Right. I agree. So it's not that he is not that he's helpless victim. Right. He is. He is choosing to go to this. To this. Right. Um, he's right. choosing to go down this path. Right. And it's. I think it's also significant, though, as well, that there's relatively little explicit interpretation of Jesus' suffering, death, and resurrection at this point. Now, later in the gospel, we'll see more, and and as we've said before, typically um, the gospel writers use um, Hebrew Bible passages like um, Psalm 22 and Isaiah 53 and some of those other texts to interpret the meaning of Jesus' death. But here it's just the stark statement of what's going to happen with no interpretive meaning. It's just this is what's going to happen. And and perhaps that's part of why it was so difficult for the disciples to be able to, to get a handle on it. Because in their mind, Messiah doesn't die. Doesn't Messiah die. conquers yeah. and rules. Yeah. And that's, that's a huge, I mean, I, I, you kind of get why they don't get it, right? Mm-hmm. It's just when you have been taught it's a reteaching it's not just you know it's any when you think about teaching teaching people um if they've learned it one way to mm-hmm. learn something to take you have to unlearn this is a whole paradigm shift for yeah them it's in a terms whole of it's, their understanding it's massive of what God yeah is doing. all right so let's keep moving on what happens next How's well mark? mark interestingly comments that jesus said all this quite openly in verse 32 mm-hmm. And I think perhaps we were meant to see a contrast with what we saw earlier in Mark chapter 4, that much of what Jesus had taught the disciples had been in private, away from any who were not in the circle of the 12 Mm -hmm. disciples. And perhaps this implies a larger group of people accompanying Jesus, Mm -hmm. that he said it openly, right? Mm -hmm. It wasn't just the disciples who were there, where there were others, there were others there. And we'll see a little bit more about that later. But it's here that that Mark reports that Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, uh, which is uh, totally ironical to me because, uh, uh, you know, a disciple doesn't rebuke a teacher. Right, right. (laughs) That doesn't happen. And I think most of us, when we read that, are a little horrified. And so Mark tells us then that Jesus in turn rebuked Peter and said, get behind me, Satan, for you're setting your mind not on divine things, but on human things. And I think that's really the crux is that last part. Oh, yes. He was rejecting God's plan of a suffering and rejected Messiah. Mm-hmm. He could not handle that. And 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 Jesus knew that that was, that was what was God's plan for him. Right. That was his mission. Right. Now, of course, we've as we've mentioned before, while the language is harsh, you know, get behind me, Satan. It's not so much worse than the earlier notice in connection with the feeding of 5,000 that the disciples' hearts were hardened because, mm-hmm. as we said before, it's, it's the unbelievers, it's the opponents whose hearts are hardened. Or the, um, um, the, the line of questioning in the setting of the yeast of the Pharisees earlier in this chapter. Mm-hmm. He, he, Jesus himself asked them, Do you still not perceive or understand? Are your hearts hardened? Do you have eyes and fail to see? Do you have ears and fail to hear? Which recalls to us um, in Mark 12 that Jesus explained that he taught the crowds in parables so that they may indeed look but not perceive and may indeed listen but not understand so that they may not turn again and be forgiven, quoting Isaiah 6, 9 mm-hmm, through 10. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, you know, it's, you know, Jesus is asking him, you know, are you guys, have you been with me so long? And, and really you, you don't, you, yeah. you don't understand your, right. you know, your eyes are blind, your ears 
won't hear and, and you know and, right, and this right, sort right. of associate almost by implication associates the disciples with the ones who are actually on the outside or, or even opponents to Jesus yeah yeah I think it's hard to wrap our brain around too when we've mm-hmm. watched these disciples walk sure. with him and you think they get it and, we, and they don't we want to we want to think of the disciples as getting it but but in Mark's gospel you know the, the harshness of Jesus rebuke of Peter is just right in step with some of the other harsh statements made about the disciples in, in the gospel. Yeah. Yeah. But it, sometimes the disciples are held up as being super, like, you know, super leaders, super Christians. Like we, you know, in, particularly in Roman Catholic tradition, we have saints or, and I think it really reflects the humanness and the, the fallenness, if you will, mm. of, 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 of humanity. And, and, um, I think it's. I think it speaks directly to us in some ways. Surely, these were you know? very ordinary people who, exactly. who struggled. Who struggled to understand what Jesus meant for them. Exactly, and perhaps that was that was some of the pastoral concern behind Mark's um, uh, framing it this way. Is is to you know that his community was very much probably under pressure, and they were struggling to understand what mm-hmm. Jesus meant for them as well. Oh yeah, good point. Good point. All right, keep going. Keep going. What's next? Now. You know, I think it's notable that in a gospel with no formal temptation narrative, the role of Peter here is is framed as one of as a, of an opponent or an adversary to Jesus' mission. Mm-hmm. Uh, and again, I think this also suggests that Peter did not just plainly did oh, not understand I agree. Jesus' mission and therefore did not understand Jesus' identity when he confessed you are the Christ because I, because he can't accept the idea exactly. that he's going to suffer and die. And I agree with that. And I think it's pretty clear from this. I think the the problem here is that often people interpret this as Peter getting it. Mm-hmm. That's the way Matthew frames it. That's right. not the way Mark frames well, it. Well, and that's so. And I th- yeah, I think we need to leave room for the different the different perspectives. You know, Matthew mm-hmm. has one perspective on this. Mark has a different perspective mm-hmm. on this. And both, I think, give us perhaps it's a combination that gives us perhaps the true picture of of what was going on. So, um. Now, one of the things, I don't know if, if you were listening back in February, but we have discussed some of this before. So, Alan, why don't you, you know, pull that into this discussion here? Yeah, the, the rest of the passage we took up in our podcast for February 21st, 2021, and, and so we'll, we'll perhaps be a little, take it a little different direction. But as, as we discussed then, and as the passage continues, Jesus proceeds to define the true nature of discipleship mm-hmm. in the light of his own mission. And, and the task of his disciples is determined by his own task. So Jesus is going to suffer and die. That means that they're going to have to follow a similar path. Now, while Matthew 16:24 sets this in the context of disciples alone, according to Mark, in verse 34, Jesus called the crowd and his disciples and invited them all to follow him in discipleship. So, so again, earlier Jesus had announced openly and publicly that his path was one that would lead him to death. And here he makes clear that the task of disciples was to follow him on that path. But, and Mark says he makes that clear to the crowd. And we may be wondering where this crowd came from since Jesus had apparently withdrawn from Jewish territory to Caesarea Philippi. I think given the fact that these two episodes are joined together in all three Gospels, we would have to see this as an implication that 
perhaps Jesus was traveling with more than just the 12 and the women who accompanied them. I think it implies that there was a larger group. Maybe they were interested parties. Maybe they were would-be disciples. But nevertheless, there was a larger group present for the events that are narrated here. Both, um, both this episode where Jesus explains what it means to follow him, but also the previous one where Jesus asks, who do people say oh, that right, I am? Right. Who do you say that I am? Okay. Uh, again, it, well, and our reformers respond differently to this, as you'll discover. They mm-hmm. they think it. They think that disciples are separated. So of course they do. Um, but again, <laughs> they've just collapsed everything, so yeah. it, it makes sense. But well, I, and Matthew has priority over the defective Mark Gospel of Mark. <laughs> well, that's true. That's that's how they view it, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so okay, so then we we are moving on, um, and uh, we, we start really getting into this this what it means to to follow fo- be a follower of Christ. And yeah, and so, you know, since Jesus' mission is to suffer and die, the call to discipleship he offers is similar. Mm-hmm. If any want to become my followers, let them deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. Now, to deny self means basically to renounce self as the controlling factor in one's life. Uh, to take up one's cross reveals the method by which Jesus would die mm-hmm. for the first time in Mark. Yes. And and so not only is Jesus revealing that he's going to die, he's also implying that he's going to die on a cross. And I think the two of them together reflect the likelihood of persecution and even facing death on the part yes. of Mark's community. You know, we think of taking up your, it's a cross we have to bear. You know, this is just something difficult that we have to deal with, you know, because life is hard. That's not at all what Jesus is talking about here. He's talking about what he says later in verse 35. Those who He's talking about those who lose their life for my mm-hmm. sake and for the sake of the gospel. And with Mark's community, that was a very real possibility right. or maybe even a likelihood that some would lose their lives for his sake and for the gospel right and and so you know i think in the in the first place we need to see that as being the basis you know jesus is saying i'm going to suffer and die he's saying to his disciples if you come after me you're going to suffer and die as well and and of course luke 9 23 uh sort of reinterprets it a bit his call is to take up their cross daily which of course doesn't make a whole lot of sense, right? Because if you take up your cross and you're crucified and die, you're dead. Yeah. So obviously Luke is interpreting, is, is presenting this in a, in a setting where persecution was not so much a factor. And right. in, in Luke's setting, it means more the idea of living a life of self-sacrifice right. and love and service, just as Jesus did. And I think that's probably the main emphasis that we take away from it in our context. Well, right? and, and this has implications for, you know, what does it mean to be a follower? And I think what we, does it mean to be a follower of the crucified Christ? And it, that was that was it, yeah. the gist of Jürgen Moltmann's book, The Crucified God. Yeah. You know, Jesus dies on the cross and calls us to follow him on the same path. What does that mean for us as Christians? Right. And and uh, that's a different space than mm-hmm. than this this Luke version, which has a much softer connotation. Or, and, or the idea that you know I have come that they might have life and have it more abundantly. You know, here it's Jesus is saying, if you want to follow me, you're going to die a horrible death. Yeah. And well, and maybe, as you said, Mark's community, probably really the persecutions were on that this was, this was very much a reality they might face. Yes. yes. Um, I mean, all we have to do is look at the book of Acts to know that there were Christians who were, who were, who were basically um, caught up in a mob 
violence and a riot oh, and were killed. Oh, absolutely. So again, Jesus kind of goes on in, in the passage and spells out the implication of the decision to follow him by contrasting those who lose their lives for his sake and for the gospel with those who try to save their lives and gain the whole world. And again, I think what Jesus is saying is that if you hold on to your own selfish desires or your own desires for having a good life, that's really a formula for actually losing it, which to me, it's mm. like, it's like the, the very, the very um, heart and soul of the way the Christian life is presented by so many people out there these days is the exact opposite of what Jesus is saying, yeah. because basically yes. they're saying you're going to have this great life and you're going to have, yeah. you know, there's this promise that you're going to have all your, your best life now. Right. Right. And, right. and you know, oh, <laughs> Jesus absolutely. says here, you know, that if you, if you, if you, if you try to have your best life now, you're going to lose your life. And, and the only way to finding your life is to give it away uh, for the sake of Jesus and for the sake of the gospel. Mm -hmm. uh, and so, you know, to me, I, I think of Dietrich Bonhoeffer in his classic work, Discipleship, where he speaks about costly grace. Yep. And he says it's costly because it calls us to discipleship. It is grace because it calls us to follow Jesus. It is costly because it costs people their lives. It is grace because it thereby makes them live. Yeah. So um, then we kind of, start to head towards the end um how does jesus end this i mean well jesus ends this on a note that i've always found to be strange yeah, you strange. know he says that whoever's ashamed of me and my words in this age that of that person the son of man will be ashamed when he comes with glory in verse 38 i think in this context we're meant to understand this saying to refer to those who turn back from the possibility of losing their mm -hmm. lives in persecution for the sake of the gospel. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. You know, they're faced with, with the prospect, are you a Christian? Do you, do, do you renounce Christ or do you do confess Christ? And, you know, they, instead of confessing Christ and dying for their faith, they renounce Christ yep. and live. And, you know, in fact, we know from Tertullian that there were many who actually had done this. And one of the, oh, yes, one of the controversies yes. in the early second century was, could those people be forgiven right, of that right. sin? You know, could they be forgiven and be restored? And, and actually, I think Tertullian was, was one who said yes once. But no more. Oh yeah, I think you're right. Yes, yes once, once, but no more. But no more, yeah. right? <laughs> you know, and 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 in our day and time, of course, I think this is almost lost on us because you know the typical interpretation is you know if you're not out there telling people about Jesus, then that means you're ashamed of him and that that you know you're not really a true Christian. Mm -hmm. You know, that's not that's totally beside the point. Mark was writing for people who were literally going to face right, the prospect right. of losing their lives. It, it once in a while. You know, you hear about about folks still in this position today, particularly folks that are um, the Sudanese, um, lots of persecution in South Sudan. Um, mm -hmm. I've talked with a few folks that have been, you know, one of a handful of people in um, um, in, in, in areas where Christians are persecuted today. Mm -hmm. And this idea of it didn't denomination, all those things stopped as they came together and they worshipped the the 12 or 13 or however many showed up and in in great fear and mm -hmm. so there are people that have these experiences yes, today but yes, most indeed. of us in this country don't. we do we not just and don't. unfortunately that means that this gets kind of trivialized and mm -hmm. of course that reminds me of another saying that 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 Bonhoeffer 
uh, spoke about in, in his discipleship, and that's about cheap grace. Yes. And he says it this way, cheap grace means grace as bargain, base, bargain basement goods, cut rate forgiveness, cut rate comfort, cut rate sacrament. Cheap grace is grace without a price, without costs. Because grace alone does everything, everything can stay in its old mm-hmm. ways. Cheap grace is grace without discipleship, grace without the cross, grace without the living incarnate Christ. Mm-hmm. And I think the thing that, uh, the reason why I call attention to Bonhoeffer's because I think the thing he really put his finger on is, you know, the fact that when, when, when Jesus spoke these words, he was talking to people that, you know, this was going to be costly for them. Mm -hmm. Uh, Following Jesus was going to be costly for them. And um, unfortunately in our context, you know, because it doesn't cost much for us to follow Jesus in, in a lot of settings, um, I'm afraid we we tend to view grace as almost cheap grace. It's like we do. I, you know I we can do. live however I want I can to do because God's, I want God's gonna love God's me. gonna God love me no it. matter what, mm-hmm. and and that is cheap grace because the grace of our Lord and Savior Jesus the Christ, who died on the cross and rose again and was ascended to the heaven at the right hand of God, is a grace that calls us to right. offer our lives for his sake and for the right. sake of the gospel. Right. And so to me, the point that's the point of the lesson, is that a true understanding of who Jesus is and what his mission is, is going to lead us to a true understanding mm-hmm. of our own mission identity yes. as any those who would come after him. And that means, you know, we deny ourselves and we sacrifice our lives, whatever that may look like in our context. Yeah, I agree. I agree. Thanks. Thanks. Hi, friends. We're back, and I'm going to ask Christy to tell us a bit about what the Reformers had to say about this passage. Sure. And, you know, when you read the passage, I most of the things they said were kind of obvious from reading the text. But there were a few nuggets I pulled out that I thought were particularly interesting. And I think the one piece um, from Calvin was particularly helpful. And Calvin said, look, hey, I think, he says, we should never preach the death of Christ without mentioning the resurrection. And yes, we know we know that. And this is really embedded into our Protestant tradition, although I don't think we often always think about it. I think yeah. now it's become so ingrained that we don't spend a lot of time thinking about it. But um, Yeah, it, we, we don't necessarily, we're not necessarily conscious of the fact that every worship service is a celebration of the resurrection. Right, right. You know, and as I did a funeral yesterday, I specifically told everyone we we call this a witness to the resurrection and and uh, uh calvin you know, calvin said look this passage is so horrible if we don't have the promise of resurrection and pointing out that jesus telling them he is going to die on the cross is is heart-wrenching it is it it takes faith away unless you have the resurrection. You know, and, and when you think about this, and, and we, we don't because we're raised in a church, we're raised with the promise of the resurrection, but think about this. This is really in Calvin's terms, that, that you're following and, and helping people um, heal and, and, and see their call. All of this is, is stuff that is life-giving. It's, it's, it, it's empowering. And then this person tells you, I'm going to die on the cross, which is shameful. We've talked about the shame associated with it. And then to have, and and then to say, okay, and then have faith in me. And so Calvin said, it doesn't, it doesn't work. 
but he's in a, a reality of time when things are, when people do die around you all the time. And well, it reminds me, too, of what Paul said in, in 1 Corinthians 15. You know, if Christ isn't raised, we're of all people most to be pitied. Exactly. So he suggests to the preachers out there, you have to preach the resurrection of Christ every time you preach the death. And I think that was, I just think it's really interesting. And as I come to think about our Protestant churches, um, you know, we always have that empty cross. Um, my, my church, I, the church I, I work at is Church of the Cross. I mean, um, and this huge cross up in the front to remind us of the resurrection. Um, but this tradition, as you know, and I think I may have talked about it before, if you go into a Roman Catholic tradition, you would likely see a, a crucifix. You could see the, you know, um, uh, hanging Christ, emphasizing really the death more than the resurrection. Well, and emphasizing the fact that, um, uh, as Isaiah 53 says it, you know, surely he was afflicted for our griefs and, and mm-hmm. he suffered for our sorrows. And the idea is that, you know, uh, we don't have a high priest who, you know, doesn't understand us, but we have one who is tested in every way right, as we do. Right. So Jesus understands the sufferings that we, Absolutely. Uh, that we have to Absolutely. endure in life. That's, right. that's, that's the theological right. import behind the crucifix. Absolutely. And, and, of course, it has value as well. Um, Although I've been told by a Presbyterian that as, when she was raised as a little girl in the Catholic Church, all it did was, was scare her. I think it does. I can scare youngsters. So, you know, it's... it's uh, it, there's some of both, right? The theology, mm. uh, in, and Roman Catholic theology is not devoid of the resurrection, obviously. Obviously, right. You know, and, and neither are we devoid of, of the suffering Christ. Right. Um, but I do think Calvin's point here is interesting. And I, I think, in my mind, it reminds me, I always try to think of a, giving a sermon with a, a message of hope, you know, it, it, it ultimately at the end. You know, sure. I, I don't want to tell them they're all doomed. <laughs> no, no, I don't either. Yeah, yeah. But yeah, I mean, there is a reason why uh, we have empty crosses in yes. our Protestant churches. Yes. And that's because it's a witness to the resurrection. Yes, yes, yes. So I thought that was an interesting comment that he yeah. put into this passage. I, I, You know, when I think about this, I think about Good Friday service. You know, it's like... Uh, you yes. know, I, oh. you know, I'm I'm probably not going to end my Good Friday sermon on a note of resurrection, right? But you know, everything we do in Christian worship is infused with the language and the hope of faith, mm-hmm. and, and which is which is defined by the resurrection. Whether it's singing the doxology right, or whether right. it's our confession of faith, whatever it is, you know, even our hymns, you know, right. They, they, there is a, there is a hope factor there. Right, but I think Good Friday is kind of meant to be in conjunction with Easter oh, absolutely. Sunday. Absolutely, I mean, you, you're not going to Good Friday and not showing up for Easter Sunday. Yeah, so it, that's it right. and and it so it provides. Yeah, the, most people, most people don't show up for Good Friday and they come to Easter. Right? Yeah, yeah. Although I love Good Friday service, as as it really gives you a chance to. Um, to cry, to weep, and mm-hmm. to be in that agony and that sorrow. Mm-hmm. So, but again, you have to hold it, hold that hope into Easter because you know yes, Easter's you coming. Yeah, some yeah. of my favorite memories of Good Friday services were, were times in my life where it was rough, mm-hmm. and I was I was hurting and I was afraid, and it was a great comfort to me to be able to know that. Jesus yeah. took my griefs exactly. and my sorrows on himself. Exactly. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. So anyway, yeah, but, uh, you know, I, I tend, I like both. I like the empty cross, 
And I like the crucifix I do too. also. I agree. I like them both as well. Um, and uh, I think they both have both have significance for our sure. faith, for sure. sure. So um, anyway, that was just one kind of uh, main point I took from it. But there are more specific things. Now, um, this whole identification of Jesus... Um, is definitely within the discussion of the reformers. And interestingly enough, they did seem to um, um, agree that while Peter did identify Jesus, that like we talked about, that he didn't fully understand who Jesus was. And um, so that uh, that at least is in, in, in parts of, of, their, of their discussion. I think that's all the more... Um amazing to me given the fact that they would be reading the gospel story with matthew as mm-hmm, the as mm-hmm. the as sort of the starting point matthew sets the tone for understanding jesus mm-hmm. in in their minds and that had been true for you know from from the beginning in mm-hmm. the early second century you know the matthew had was sort of the right. was seen as the first gospel not just in in terms of canonical order but in terms of pref, uh, pr- priority mm-hmm. well and i think part of it I think at least for Calvin anyway, it's just that not really fully um, being able to wrap your brain around um, a, a, around a Savior dying. I mean, I think his point is they had to witness that death on the cross mm-hmm. to fully begin to comprehend that loss. Mm-hmm. I think that's where Calvin's coming from. It's interesting that he talks about it that way because, you know, I mean, except for John's gospel, you know, we're told that the disciples weren't anywhere to be found at the cross, you know? Uh, yeah. Well, it, right. But, and I, 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 I guess did, just the notion they I, knew what was going I, they on. They knew what was going on, I think, yeah. is more what he's talking about. And I think for, G, for Calvin, it really fits into what then this kind of total depravity concept it's Mm. it's like we really don't understand um until we realize we are nothing without christ and that is that is paramount in the resurrection and um so i think that's kind of how he's kind of tying it into that concept of look they can understand but they don't really understand Mm -hmm. you don't fully understand how much you rely on uh, you rely on jesus until that resurrection. Well, and I think we'll see when we get back around to year A and we're in Matthew's gospel and we look at this passage in Matthew's gospel. You know, in Matthew's gospel, Matthew presents the disciples as examples for people to follow. And so I think we're going to see a, a bit different take of it when we look at it in the context mm-hmm. of Matthew's gospel because because that's the way Matthew is presenting it. Matthew is intentionally mm-hmm. presenting the disciples as examples for yeah, us to follow. Yeah, exactly. And so yeah. it's a, it's a diff, whole different space whole different. in Matthew. Mm-hmm. So Calvin is the one that, that that comes with the idea of look these these disciples are their their role is temporary they're, and he's putting them really into this human space their role is to go proclaim Jesus um, get people to come but it's not until they hear the, Jesus speaking that's the disciples role is not to be proclaiming Christ um, in Christ that Christ will rise but rather just to gather people in. Mm. to be listening to Jesus is Jesus is the one that's going to tell the word. Mm. And I think that has something to do with God's authority. Do, and mm-hmm. I guess it would, I guess I guess he's making a distinction between the role of the disciples when Jesus was alive yes, versus the role of the disciples after Jesus absolutely. Had, had died and risen and had yes. commissioned them to be his witnesses. Absolutely. Yeah, yes. That make, that it's makes two sense. different it's two different yeah. spaces. So at this point, yeah. Mm. And of course that would what emphasize 
God, Jesus is mm-hmm. mouthpiece for God and God's sovereignty. So mm-hmm. that fits within sure. Calvin's kind of sure. um, worldview. Yeah, theology. I'm not so sure I would agree with him on that on that distinction in every case because Jesus himself sends the sends the twelve out to to witness, right? Uh, <laughs> to extend uh, well, his ministry. Well, I know, I know. <laughs> well, but Calvin says on that 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 is like practice. Yeah. <laughs> well, that's good. Yeah. That. You so can see they it can that realize yeah. how can dependent they are on Christ. Yeah. It's. Yeah, huh. so Calvin actually has that built in. Interesting, um, interesting. Yeah, yeah, to his theology, but it's kind of yeah. yeah. Um, well, I, I think in Mark's gospel, the the role of disciples is just to learn. I think that's why we've got that verb. You know, mm-hmm, Jesus mm-hmm. taught them, began to teach them. You know, the, their role is just to learn, and they're, they're the whole time they're just trying to catch on. Yeah, yeah, I I I think that's fair. I think that's fair, and again, we come at it knowing the end. Mm-hmm. And I think that makes it hard for us to fully grasp the experience. Hard for us to put ourselves in their shoes. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So, and then of course this part on re- rebuking Peter and Calvin, Calvin really looks at Peter. And I, we I talked about this before, but um, it's just really this heart of, of human sin. Um, and that, and he, he talks about it in terms of the obstinacy of, humans doing what they perceive as right even though they are wrong um and so he of course he does this little attack on the roman catholic church but <laughs> claiming look they're doing all these devotions but what's the what's the point of those devotions because they're missing that broader point just like P- peter was missing who jesus was and what jesus said um and so i i, I kind of mm-hmm. think i have the notion that calvin was reading his own setting perhaps into mark's gospel a little bit there <laughs> uh you know he, well how can he help it right but i think of it mm-hmm. i think of it in those those and i think of that in terms of you know for 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 peter can the messiah die you know, that's just not an option. It's in not his a, mind, it's not you know? an option. It exactly. It doesn't make sense. I mean, that is where Peter that's why it's so confounding. I mean, he is like, No, that's not how it works. You, Jesus, do not understand. This doesn't work this way. And that's I think why this is such a uh, amazingly powerful uh verse set of mm-hmm. verses here, because it is like, No, Peter, you don't get it. Right. And nobody gets it. Right. But we have to start moving that way because this is going to happen. Yeah. yeah. This must happen. It must. Yeah. It must happen. Yeah. So anyway, um, so to give you a little idea of how this theology from the Reformation really becomes to shape the church, and I think you obviously heard it in this, you know, some of these fundamental ideas that Calvin has really have come down to us today. So. Yeah. All right. Well, thanks, Thank Christy. Hi everybody. We are we are back, and you know as we think about this in passage, we talked about this really an important passage where it fits because it's really the first time uh, we realize that that Jesus is going to die on the cross, and um, it it really changes the focus of the gospels towards that um, that walked to Jerusalem, and um, so I guess in that mind set. What you know? What does it mean to be a follower of Christ? Yeah, I, I think that's the essential question. And and you know, in my mind, the question is, how does following a crucified Christ orient our lives? Um, everybody knows I'm a fan of Jurgen Moltmann, 
And, um, of course, one of his best-known books is The Crucified God. I don't know if anybody's read the preface to the paperback edition uh, that was written in 1990, but um, um, Moltmann recounts a story about his theology of the cross in this book um, in a Latin American context. He got a letter from Robert McAfee Brown, and um, who told him the story of the um, martyrdom of a number of um, Catholic priests in San Salvador uh, on November uh, in November 1989. Six well-known Jesuits were brutally murdered in the university there, um, including Ignacio Ayacaria and John Sub- John Sobrino taught at this university, but he wasn't there, fortunately. But um, in the letter, um, McCaffrey Brown uh, continues by saying, when the killers were dragging some of the bodies back into the building, as they took one of the bodies into John's room, they hit a bookcase and knocked a book on the floor, which became drenched with the martyr's blood. In the morning, when they picked up the book, they found it was your crucified God. This, and Moltmann continues, this sign and symbol gives me a great deal to think about. What it says to me is that these martyrs are the, the seed of the resurrection of a new world. Like Archbishop Oscar Romero, they are the hope of the people, unforgettable, inextinguishable, irresistible. And, you know, in our day and time, in our world, you know, I've grown up in the church. But the, even the possibility of martyrdom has never even crossed my mind. That is not even an issue for me, you know, in my right. Christian faith. And, and yet, <laughs> Moltmann says it really well uh, in the uh, introduction to um, his, his crucified God. He says, The crucified Christ himself is a challenge to Christian theology and the Christian church, which dare to call themselves by his name. Mm-hmm. And, and the, the point he's making here is that the Christ that we are, are following in our Christian theology, mm-hmm. in our Christian church, is the one who died right. on the cross. Right. And we have to take that into account to be fully Christian. Right. Um, and uh, I, I don't, I think, I think in our context, in this setting, in, the American, in American Christianity, you know, with so much prosperity, so much safety, so much security, mm-hmm. um, our focus is on so many other things right than than on what does it mean that i seek to follow right. a christ who died a shameful and horrific death on a cross you know and mm-hmm. and that people in my lifetime have suffered martyrdom right right for the sake right of the gospel right um, you know, well, and you remember uh, just uh, a few years back, uh, several Coptic Christians were were murdered, and and um, you know, so there are the people still dying today for the faith. No. It's just not so much here. I mean, you know, the, there are people in this setting who will speak about the cost that it takes on them being a Christian in a secular society True. and and i get that but it's nothing it's nothing compared like to losing your life you know this this reminds me of and i'm gonna jump back a little bit because historically right we had first you know our many of our disciples 
were martyred. Um, and then we have a persecuted church where many people are martyred. Of course, and that's where the, you know, eventually once Christianity became it, the official religion of the Roman Empire. Well, then martyrdom was not as typical of a thing because right. it was it, they weren't persecuted anymore. So that's really was the origin then of of some of the monastic movement. It's like, well, how mm. can I show my devotion? How can I hit that that how commitment can, of a martyr? How can I deny myself and take up my cross? Exactly. Right? And so that's of course how the monastic movement started. Um, and yet at the same time. Um, as that moved forward, and of course our, our Protestant tradition said that's not really what we're being called to do. Right. Um, this really isn't building up the kingdom of heaven on earth because you're stuffed away in a, and you're not really confronting the, the real needs of society. So, Well, and you know, I would say as much as I love the rich contribution of the monastic tradition, to, you know, the spiritual resources that we have as Christians today. I would agree, you know, the call is not to withdraw and separate yourself. The call is to take, you know, is to deny yourself, take up your cross, Mm -hmm. and follow me. And, you know, for me, so what are the things that are nearest and dearest to our hearts? Mm -hmm. I mean, that's really where the water hits the wheel. Well, to me, it's family. Mm Mm-hmm. To me, it's, it's um, you know, I'm 60, so I'm thinking about retirement and finances. Mm-hmm. And, and to me, it's, it's career. How can, I, how can I lead my church well and continue to lead with energy, intelligence, and imagination mm-hmm. and love? Mm-hmm. You know, and, and those things. And those, those are the things that are most important to me. Mm-hmm. And, and I find myself getting, basically living my life in that, in that space of family and and retirement and mm-hmm. career, mm-hmm. and um, you know, I have to confess, there's really not much room in there for you know, how does following a Christ who died a shameful and horrific death orient my life? Yeah, yeah. It's, um, yeah, I, I, I feel like, you know, I, when I look at some of the folks in Nazi Germany who were really facing that evil head on and, and their lives, obviously, and uh, we talked about Bonhoeffer earlier, um, were at risk um, or we put ourselves at risk for some other some other cause as Christians, you know, that we know are, are, are ones that, that we could die for. Yeah. It's um, but I I think I think we have to we have to dig deep to figure out if we're still just responding to the comforts of life that make us happy that make us happy or whether indeed we do have um, a call on caring for humanity that that could put our life at risk maybe I'm not sure I mean you know I I think about that sometimes it's for what would you die. You know, um, I think there's a movie to that end, you know, sometimes, you know, sometimes I think about young people uh, in the military, you know, so I'll, I'll die for my country, you know, um, uh, I'll, I'll die for just some kind of justice issue. I'll die for, um, you know, saving children at a, a school that's being shot. Um, um, and, and 
Well, and to be fair, some of those people do that because of their faith. I, I, yeah, they do do because of their faith sometimes, you know. Or I maybe in today's context, it's because I'm not confronted with that every day. What am I doing in my life then to give others life? Mm-hmm. You know, like you have to turn on your head I, since I'm not feeling daily death. And if I would die in that process, it's okay because I have, I have given myself to... The lives of others, something sure. like that. Well, and, and this is where I think Luke's interpretation does help us. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Because Luke interprets it, take up your cross daily, mm-hmm. which which to me does translate into a life of sacrificial service mm-hmm. for others. Mm-hmm. And, and and that really is the call, you know, and, and I that's why I like the way, bon, you know, Bonhoeffer has the famous saying, you know, when Christ calls us, that call leads us to death. And yeah. obviously, it might not lead us to actual physical death, you know, martyrdom, but it leads us to die to ourselves and to die to the mm-hmm. things that we hold most dear, the things that are most important to us, and to and to find our life by giving it away mm-hmm. in sacrificial service to others. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I mean, the, the truth of the matter is, you know, over the course of my life, the times in my life that I have found to be most fulfilling are those when I was in a place of doing that, serving sacrificially. Yeah, yeah, I agree. And I think, um, you know, it's kind of that I'll give my life for this, I've, but yet that's where you find life, you know. Mm-hmm. And I, I was reflecting, <laughs> reflecting on yesterday after a funeral how much, how life-giving doing funerals is, mm-hmm. um, you know, um, as opposed to some of the other stuff that we've been doing, doing it's, um, it's, uh, it's such a strange space. And, and, you know, my husband, hell yeah, who would want to do funeral? And I'm like, mm-hmm. that's, I, I, as exhausting as they are and as much energy as they take out of you, they are also the most life giving, if you will, mm-hmm. you know? Well, you feel like you're actually, um, serving people in a way that that is tangible, yeah. And much exactly. of what we do in the ministry is not very tangible. Exactly. <laughs> it, well, you know, because most people stuff their faith aside, and it's not important. It's cheap grace. It's um, you know, follow God when I want to. And um, well, and to me, I, I view American Christianity as taking taking you know um, the the call to follow Jesus to a cross and turned it into a sort of a sanctified wish fulfillment. Follow Jesus and you'll have life abundant, which basically translates into you'll get everything you've ever dreamed for. Exactly. And, exactly. you know, or you'll get your best life now, you know, and everybody knows who I'm talking about when I, when I quote <laughs> yes. that phrase. Oh, well, exactly. But, but that is not what Jesus promised that you know jesus Mm -mm. that was not the call especially Mm -hmm. not in mark's gospel right and and you know this is one of the reasons why i love the crucified god in moltmann's book is because he continually holds our feet to the fire to say if we are going to dare to call ourselves by the name christian Mm -hmm. means follow you know followers of christ the christ who died on the cross we must continually be holding up to ourselves what does that mean? I think I shared uh, on the podcast that during Lent, I was doing some um, 
doing some devotionals, and I have the uh, miniature version of the homeless Jesus statue that um, um, the the Catholic sculptor mm-hmm, has mm-hmm. placed in various places, you know, a life-size version of it. And, and I have to confess, you know, I find myself at times really just looking at that sculpture and thinking, how can I possibly serve you? Mm-hmm. You know, you, you who gave up so much for me, uh, how can I possibly serve you? Because it just, it seems almost... It seems almost impossible, given the the, 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 the structures of our society, the structures of ministry that we have. Yeah, yeah. You know, I, I mean, I hope that what I do, I do for the right motivations, and I do do it for the sake of others and for the sake mm-hmm. of serving. And I hope that what I'm doing is for the sake of of the body of Christ. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um. But, you know, to me, even what sacrifices I've made for the sake of the body of Christ pale in comparison. Yeah, I, I, I totally get it. And it's, it's hard to, um, I, I think that's, I think therein is part of our human sin, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, even our sin and our inability to, to do what we're called to do. And that's where we just lay it down and mm-hmm. we say, uh, you know, grace of God. Um, I am know, what I am I by am the grace of God. Yes, yep. indeed. And I, I have tried to respond to the grace of God in, in, in you know in my life um, as as best as I know how. I'm very conscious of the fact that nothing in my life comes even close to having had to to die for the sake right. of Christ or right. for the sake of the gospel. I have made certain sacrifices. Um, um, some of them for the sake of the gospel, some of them simply for the sake of my family. Right. But, um, um, uh, you know, I think this is, uh, you know, this is one of those areas, I think, where we may never know, like, what is the final answer to how does one actually deny self and take up the cross in the way that Jesus meant it in Mark's gospel in this society. We may not, we may never get to the place of that, of answering that question. But I think what we're meant to do is to at least keep the question in front of us, keep the challenge in front of us, because that creates a tension that keeps pulling Mm us toward a deeper discipleship, a more fuller sense of discipleship. And I think that's what Moltmann was trying to do in The Crucified God, was to just hold that up. Right, right, exactly, exactly. That we keep before us always the fact that Jesus died. right for us right. and he called us to be willing to lay down our lives for others and, and in the in the original sense that was a literal yeah exactly sense. it was it was um, but so how then can i lay down my life for others mm-hmm. in this setting where that doesn't mean that i'm going to have to die right right well we'll let you ponder that <laughs> thanks christy thanks That's our podcast for today. If you heard something that was helpful to you, please subscribe to our podcast and tell your friends about us. It's our hope and prayer that our time together might bear fruit in your ministry as you build up the body of Christ. We hope you'll tune in next week. And in the meantime, let's keep serving each other as we together listen listen for for the the word. word.